0: I want to welcome you to something a little different than the normal Noise Creators podcast in that this is going to actually be a chapter from the audiobook of my last book, Processing Creativity. They say if you love something, then you have to set it free. So that's exactly what I'm doing. A year ago, I put out this book and I really want it to keep spreading to people. And I realized one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is by making it free. So from right now till July 1st, this book will be free and a different chapter of it will come out every week for the next few weeks. And It'll stay available for free till July 1st, and then I'm going to delete these podcasts. As well during this time, the Kindle book will be 99 cents, but the physical book will remain at the regular price because, you know, they cost money to print. So enjoy this free audiobook. It's a very similar subject to what you hear on this podcast most of the time. And if you enjoy it, please, please, please pay it back. You know, this book usually costs almost $20 on Audible. The way you can pay it back is just telling somebody else who will enjoy it about it. It's really important to me that these ideas spread, and that's why I'm doing this. So I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you spread the word. Thank you. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about Manic Merch, who's sponsoring this podcast. They want you to stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch with your own store of every popular merch item, while Manic Merch handles sales, shipping, customer service issues, so that creators can create and not be bothered while still profiting the way they would if they did it themselves. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you about some of the key features of Manic Merch. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. All you have to do is upload your merch designs and tell us how much you want to make off each one and we'll take care of the rest. You can avoid all the headaches of customer service emails, packing up packages, and heading to the post office. There's no financial risk since you put no money down or headaches for you to start selling merch. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. You can upload your merch designs and sell more merch by allowing fans to choose the colors and what they want them printed on. Whether it's t-shirts, sweatshirts, lighters, hats, or coffee mugs, they have over 20 different items that you can print on. You get to set your own prices where you can lower your prices if you want to sell more and raise them if you want to make more from each sale. You can also get the email of everyone who buys from you and you get paid every month on time and you also have the ability to track sales. Stop selling merch like an idiot and sign up for a store at ManicMerch.com today. Chapter 11, Executing Your Emotional Expression Your inspiration can be pouring out of you. But if you give up too soon or lose it from being unable to effectively express yourself, it's all for naught. To execute your ideas, there's crucial skills and philosophies that enable your songs to come out as great as possible. The skills of execution. Even though you're authentically fluent in your influences while bearing high standards, that doesn't mean you're equipped with all the skills you need to make music you want to hear. There are other crucial skills that help you execute your intent effectively. Diligence. When we hear musicians talk of the great songs they've written, they talk of rewriting parts of a song over and over again. This practice comes from having a standard for how good a part should feel and not stopping until it's achieved. Far too often musicians know what they want to hear but give up before ever getting there. The skill to not stop until your vision gets realized goes by a few names like diligence, grit, or persistence. Throughout the creative process, there are times it'll be annoying, hard, expensive, time-consuming, or even all the above to achieve what you know can be reached emotionally with a song. The perseverance to keep going when you're not yet feeling emotional resonance is an essential skill of execution. This drive you need to get through annoying hurdles and stubborn collaborators can be daunting, but until you gain the resilience to pursue your vision, your music won't be as resonant as possible. Every detail you allow to go below your standards is usually one you'll regret for years to come whenever you hear that song. If you've put in countless hours of development into your music, letting all of this vision cease for being too scared or too tired to pursue the execution of it is the epitome of wasted opportunity. The standards and elaborative choices you've developed are the keys to making your songs as resonant as possible. The diligent pursuit of getting your vision across is one of the most important skills you can develop. Diligence is another muscle that needs development. Trusting your instincts and learning to elaborate on your ideas takes practice for everyone. When the going gets hard, you can't give up. Can you imagine how Queen felt halfway through layering those vocals for Bohemian Rhapsody? The vocals were recorded for 10 to 12 hours a day for three weeks straight. But without this exhaustive dedication, we wouldn't have one of the most ambitious songs in music. Now, you'll probably never go through this, but understand that emotional impact is achieved by focusing diligently on the details. Proficiency. One of the most vastly under-discussed skills of great artists is proficiency. Without it, you're handicapped by difficulty in expressing what you want to express. After your gut sounds alarms, it's important to understand how to solve the problems that are giving you pause with the right solution. Novices who don't know a lick of music can tell you a part of a song doesn't feel good, but they're clueless to the remedies of what's causing this part to sound bad. Whereas an experienced musician or producer immediately knows the ailment, along with how to cure it. When you first develop these instincts, the solutions can be confusing. But with experience, you know you need to experiment until you find the solution that quiets your gut instinct. In time, you'll know the solutions to the instinctual problems you commonly feel. Bruce Springsteen puts it this way, Your artistic instinct is what you're going on, but your artistic intelligence hasn't been developed yet. He goes on to say that in his earlier work, he was instinctual by saying, That doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel good. Over and over again. But he didn't know how to express more than that. Anyone who's seen the documentaries of him taking six months to a year in the studio to record both Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town can witness him not knowing how to get the sound in his head but continually saying, it's not right yet. Proficiency is knowing what the problem is caused by as well as how to fix it. Proficiency is important since it allows inspiration to flow through you while it's fresh and potent instead of struggling to communicate it. By being fluent in how music works down to its smallest constructs, you're able to understand how to solve problems properly, as well as communicate your vision. But what does proficiency look like in music creation? The ability to play your instrument well enough to get a good recording in a few takes. The ability to spot flaws and understand their cure, instead of experimenting or guessing at the solution. Knowing your musical instrument and recording equipment well enough to get the sounds you want to hear. Being able to focus on the subtle details of performance that enhance a song. Proficiency helps keep objectivity. We're in a race against the loss of our objectivity. So if you're not proficient at your instrument, it'll require more listens as you punch it apart repeatedly. Proficiency allows us to move faster instead of having to punch it apart 400 times while hearing a song over and over. It allows us to get it in a few takes in order to maintain objectivity. An even greater time hack is when numerous members of the group can nail live takes from being proficient enough to play well together. This is why you hear of experienced musicians making records in a short period, while their imitators fail when they do the same. Proficiency helps you make good decisions. As you write songs, you'll inevitably hit a point where a part doesn't feel right. One of the most common mistakes I see is that someone will think the chorus needs more bass to make it quote-unquote bigger. So they'll EQ in more bass, when really the problem is the bass isn't playing it in the lowest octave possible. Musicians who lack proficiency often blame the wrong problem to get to a solution that ends up crippling their songs. Proficiency within your own compositions. One of the biggest complaints producers have with musicians is that they don't even understand what's happening within their own songs. Whether it's guitar strumming patterns that aren't consistent between players, or a bass being off from a kick by a 16th note, getting to know the innermost mechanics of what makes your songs tick is essential to being able to fulfill your vision. Taking the time to delve into the details of what other instruments are doing, even if you'll never play that instrument, allows you to learn how the relations work to get what you want creatively. Proficiency in Imagining New Directions Back in 1970, The Rolling Stones made Sympathy for the Devil, a movie directed by the amazing Jean-Luc Godard. The movie chronicled the recording process of the song of the same name, along with some artsy short films thrown in for good measure. The movie shows The Stones trying extremely different versions of the song, trying to find the music that would match well with the extremely visual lyrics in the song. You hear countless other ways the song could have been played that don't evoke the same creepy vibe the song evokes in the version we all know today. Thankfully, today, we're able to hear countless covers and remixes that show the potential for how different a song can sound by heading to YouTube. When crafting your song, the first idea that comes to you isn't always the match for making the lyrics and music combination its most potent fit for the intent you're trying to convey. Trying whole new versions and imagining other ways a song could be helps you to figure out its best form. Learning to vastly reimagine songs is one of the greatest proficiencies you can achieve. Proficiency in equipment. If you've ever read interviews with great musicians, you see they have very little concern for the equipment they create with. I often think of a video where Dave Grohl sits down to play on a toy drum set, and despite it sounding like a toy when others play it, the second he plays it, the set sounds like a real drum set. It's easy to drool over analog synths, vintage guitars, tape machines, and $4,500 tube compressors. I did it for many years, and then one year, I abstained from buying equipment. I got to know the equipment I had instead of obsessing over what I could have. In that year, I got immensely better at what I do. Realizing you can hand a $4,000 less Paul to an amateur and it sounds terrible, but a $40 guitar in a great guitarist's hands sounds amazing. Getting to know your equipment and its limitations always sounds great. Those who do this get the attention of the public that helps them buy more expensive equipment. Proficiency in diagnosing problems. Even the most successful suits are inexplicably uneducated in what's wrong with a song when it's not right. The mix is commonly blamed when the tempo is too slow or there are huge flaws in the vocal performance that can't be fixed by a new mix. Just because a suit is successful doesn't mean they're good at diagnosing what has gone wrong in a recording. I was once part of a large indie record that had 10 mixers do mixes before realizing the engineer who tracked it had distorted every instrument so much the only answer was to retract the whole record. There goes over $10,000 of mixing for a bunch of songs that needed to be re-recorded. There are times you'll need to call out the members of your team. If you don't understand every aspect of the process, you won't be able to communicate with them effectively. If I had a dollar for every person that incorrectly said the tempos are all the same, when they're actually very diverse, but the songs are similar in feel, I'd be so rich I'd own all that equipment I just talked about lusting after. Being proficient in knowing what each step of the process entails is part of being able to control your creative results. Musical proficiency allows you to focus on details. Proficiency allows you to focus on the details that make a song outstanding. If you have to focus on remembering your parts, playing them properly, or staying both in time and in tune, inevitably your attention has little room to focus on the subtle inflections that make a performance great. Proficient musicians don't have to worry about these concerns. In time, the details amateurs struggle with begin to be natural and no attention is even given to them. They learn their parts, executing them without considering basic factors like timing and pitch. Instead, they're able to focus on details and expression. They're not struggling to play their parts, so they can think about changing up strumming parts, the subtlety of the velocity of their hits, small fills and tweaks that make up the details we love in a performance. This proficiency is easily seen in the exceptional singers of any genre. What Haley Williams, Mike Patton, Kendrick Lamar, Joe Strummer, and Michael Jackson all have in common is they're so proficient at enunciation, pitch, and rhythm in their singing so they can focus on small details in their performance that make them come alive. You hear this in the details of inflection they all bring to their vocal performance. They're so past thinking about whether they'll hit a note or not, they could think about what a slight hiccup in their voice putting their hands in front of their mouth a cool pitch bend or accent does to their performance these details are what make these singers so enjoyable to listen to when you're concentrating on even getting to a note you need to hit your attention cannot be brought to these details since doing the basics of your job takes up all of your attention when your attention is devoted to struggling to play a part there's no emotion in it leaving your song devoid of resonance effective considerations One of the most important parts of executing your ideas is giving consideration to how you'll execute them. This process is known as pre-production of music and is valued by music producers as some of the most important time to ensure an album reaches its potential. This time is crucial as many of the decisions of this planning will determine whether you're promoting amazing music or songs that fall flat. Parkinson's Law. When planning how long a project will take to complete, there's a tendency to guess at an amount of time it'll take to accomplish. This guesstimate is usually coupled with no analysis of whether that time budgeted compensates for human traits to procrastinate and plan properly. You may decide your writing and demoing period will be two months before moving on to the actual recording of songs. These two months commonly include a lot of relaxing at the beginning, followed by intense cramming to compensate for procrastination for the last quarter of the allotted time. Parkinson's Law states, work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. Meaning that if you have a month to record a record, you'll find a way to get it done in a month. But the same goes for any reasonable amount of time. How long you decide it should take to do the various creative phases of your process should be more than a guesstimate. Many musicians leave themselves less time to do the writing for their records so they don't slack. This is born out of an observation that they're more creative under deadlines. However, the science shows the opposite. Teresa Amabile did a study on deadlines that found they don't help creativity. To make matters more confusing, creators commonly believe deadlines make them more creative. But when analyzed, it just isn't the case. In fact, creativity can even be suppressed for days after a deadline. Execution can be helped by momentum, but when it comes to getting good ideas, cramming doesn't help. The time to incubate ideas and regain perspective after breaks should be free, whereas execution should hold a deadline. Others leave excessive time to work at a leisurely pace, even though they'll probably procrastinate, which leads to being stressed by the end of the process when they're inevitably behind. Recognizing Parkinson's Law allows you to consider your past output to improve your use of time budgeting. If your last album suffered from cramming at the end, so you wrote some filler material instead of having sufficient time to incubate it properly, It may be best to explore what went wrong so you can either devote less or more time to getting your writing done. If you know you always cram at the end, it may be time to learn to break that habit or allow less time to procrastinate by committing to a more intense schedule. Devote your resources properly. One of the most common quips musicians make when they hear how long a musician spent in the studio is, What the hell do they do with all that time? When a musician gets a decent budget, there are countless ways to allocate this budget to get a better result. If you're the type of musician who thrives on live performance, this allows you to have more time to get takes of a song and decipher the best way to perform it. A common bit of advice is to decide if your record will be a minimalist or maximalist record. Will you be trying to make great songs with a simple arrangement or a record that has lots of ear candy? The supposed wisdom is if you're making a minimalist record... All your attention should be devoted to the songs, and on a maximalist record, you can skip the songs since the bells and whistles will make up for it. This advice misses that all the bells and whistles in the world won't make up for a bad song. Instead, if you're making a maximalist record, you need to devote even more time to making good songs as well as how the ear candy works to reinforce it. One of the most effective evaluations of executing your music is to figure out how to use your resources. When your song's most exciting feature is the vocals, booking tons of time to play with analog synths to make ear candy, when you should be putting thought into vocals is a gross misallocation of your resources. Choosing tones for a full day was a luxury that was mostly left behind in the post-Snapster era of the music world. But if your songs are already fully developed and your music will only be exciting if you have the most optimized tones, you should allocate the time to do so. Will they hear it? Or won't they? You should strive to hear no flaws in your recording that annoy you, since they'll only annoy you even more as your standards begin to develop over the years. Every musician who's made more than a few developed recordings can tell you about all the mistakes they made on previous recordings. Most often, they weren't trusting their instincts to fix or rework parts and settling for what was easy in the moment. The great musicians work tirelessly until their songs reach beyond their expectations, even if that means going to great lengths like re-recording songs. One of the most common dilemmas in a recording is when someone points out a flaw and another person exclaims, No one will hear that. This statement is used when there's something off about a performance, such as a rattle in a drum, an overtone in a chord, or a slight pitch intonation on an instrument. I've been on both sides of the argument, but the truth is, someone will always hear it. If the argument is whether someone will be able to hear it or not, you're having the wrong argument. Since we're making music for ourselves, if it annoys you, you should fix it. That's the answer every single time. Whether or not fixing it will make a production too slick or lose its character is an entirely different discussion, which needs to be dealt with using personal taste. Perfectionism and finishing your work. When are you done? The cost of perfection is infinite budget and time. Some Debbie Downer. It's said that no project is ever done. It's abandoned. While abandoned is a strong word for songs you may be playing live for years to come, this saying has truth. Without a deadline, budget, or the ability to go back to your recording to tweak, the only limit you have is when you decide to give up on making a song better. Most often, this only comes when you become exhausted from experiencing analysis paralysis. My barometer for when a song is done is to either have to hit an emotional high point for me where ideas have been thoroughly vetted, or we've gone too far with layering resulting in a more restrained arrangement. I use my heart to tell me when a song is fully developed, as well as my head to consider whether each part has been maximized or even overly developed. Living and Dying by Deadlines Usually projects end with deadlines, which is crucial for many artists to ensure they don't dwell on their songs forever. Deadlines are another subject where you'll hear advice that neglects the nuances of creative personalities, as well as the pitfalls that force artists to release whatever they've come up with, whether it's good or bad. Some say deadlines are imperative so artsy types stay in line, whereas others say that having a deadline poisons a project by restricting its ability to become actualized. Common knowledge is that time is the best resource to have available for any creative endeavor. Even Rick Rubin, who I praise throughout this book, is on this side. The story goes that the first Beastie Boys record took over two years to make. Contrary to what you may assume, this long gestation wasn't caused by them fighting for their rights to party the whole time. Rubin waited until they had a set of songs that sounded like a unique record instead of saying, Well, it's been six weeks, and that's it. It was important that the record would be a cohesive work that could bridge the border between rap and rock to change music. Rubin is cited as saying, The things that can't be a factor are time, chart position, radio success, sales. None of those things could get in the way of something being great. All they do is cloud the picture. What both sides of this argument miss is the need to compensate for the different types of artists' personalities and their inherent flaws that commonly ruin records. On one side of the scale is the obsessive type of musician who never stops fiddling with a the mix. They're happy to change the EQ on the snare daily, even though it makes no real difference to the song's resonance. If left to their own devices with an infinite budget, their interaxial rows will take nearly a decade to finish a record. Obsessives' dedication could be rewarded by making a great record, but these personalities usually need a reminder to ensure there aren't excessive tracks that cloud the picture or too many details that suck the life out of a song. Without a foil that keeps them in line, they'll destroy what makes their music great. The other side of the scale is the underachiever. They hate the process of creating while being overly concerned with the macro, not the micro. They want the process to be done so they can move on to the fun part where they get attention for their music. They need to get as far away from the scrutiny and ego bruises of the creative process as possible. To these types, however the record sounds at the end of the allocated time to execute is fine by them, since they want it done. They don't see the possibility of how to improve upon it. Without someone to push them towards fulfilling a great version of their songs, they'll settle without ever achieving their potential, even if there's great potential there. Phase check-ins. A way to keep both obsessives and underachievers in line is to have check-ins. Instead of saying a record must be done in four weeks, it should be due for a considered check-in then. This way your team can advise you on what they're hearing. If your record lives and dies by its groove and the whole team tells you it feels stiff, you may need to start over from scratch. If the songs and performances are good but the mix isn't there, it may be time to start working with a new mixer. If you're on check-in three and the mixers are no better than check-in number one, your self-producing obsessive mixer guitarist may have lost perspective, so it's time for someone to put this obsession in check. Despite their usual incompetence, major labels frequently employ this phased approach. The first stage is to hear demos from an to judge if they've written material that's developed enough to justify the large recording budget it will require to sound worthy of the time and money allocated. If this isn't the case, outside songwriters are usually suggested or the artist is sent back to write more songs. If they have an album's worth of good material, they're allowed to record an album with a producer. Once the producer helps them complete the song, they make some rough mixes of what happened during the recording process. The label, who are supposed to be experts at how songs should sound at this stage, this is definitely up for debate, will then often utter the cliched, We don't hear a single! The artist is then said to a producer who is a bit more of a heavy-handed writer to get a single out of them, and a couple songs they did with the last producer hit the cutting room floor, being replaced by this quote-unquote superior material. Repeat this until a single is heard, or the artist is dropped from their contract. If all goes well, they then go on to mixing the best songs to release on a record. A mastering engineer smooths out the differences in the recording, and a record is completed. Well, after the mess of artwork, marketing, and other considerations are sorted out. If you have a good team, along with friends you can trust, this phased approach can be executed without the idiocy that goes on at major labels. Unfortunately, under tight tour schedules and limited time off, this process has been all but abandoned since managers, booking agents, and labels expect artists to churn out gold after a 30-day writing period. While it may be less and less employed, this process has saved more projects than can be counted. Like most decisions made in the music business, the abandonment of this practice is poorly considered. Making sure a band doesn't enter the market with a subpar record that won't make a good impression will save money instead of wasting it. Incremental check-ins optimize budgets instead of wasting them. It's important to have checks along the path of the process to ensure the way your process compensates for any inadequacies in the creator's personalities. Simply making sure a record doesn't enter the recording process without sufficient development of songs and that the songs are fully developed before being mixed can save thousands of faulted records a year. Measure by gut, not time spent. Many fools try to measure how to make great records by the time spent making it. This is always a giant eye roll considering that it's nearly impossible to show a formula where making great music consistently happens with a certain amount of time spent. I often point to two of the best mixers in rock. Nigel Godrich, known for his work with Beck and Radiohead, usually takes around five hours to mix complex songs like those on Radiohead's OK Computer. And Dave Fridman, who's known for his work with MGMT, Tame Impala, The Flaming Lips, often takes a day or two to mix only one song. It could be argued that both of these mixers are putting out some of the most daring and complex mixes each year. Yet both take totally different approaches to getting there. Robert Smith talks about writing The Cure's Friday I'm In Love, which he said was written in about 30 minutes. As opposed to the months or years it could take them to make a song. When it was time to do the vocals of this timeless song, he couldn't get it, since he was never in the right mood. He kept going back to the microphone, experiencing one of the slowest bursts he's ever had for a vocal, until one day when he was in the perfect melancholy but happy mood to do the vocal take that emotionally embodied the amazing mood that song evokes. While I've tried to find the best practices for parts of the creative process, there's no formula for the length great music will take. It needs to be improvised and felt emotionally. Chapter 12. Creating a Nurturing Collaboration When you go to art school, you get critiques of your art every week to gain an objective perspective on your work. In film and TV, if your script gets developed, you'll receive opinions from producers, screenplay writers, and actors who will have a say on how to better tell your story. Somehow with music, there's a stigma attached to hearing feedback more than other creative fields. While I would argue since we're striving for an emotional expression, it can be tough to tell someone how to express their emotions better. There's plenty of considerations that can be made to reinforce that emotion in a group setting. Despite whatever animosity is held towards feedback on your work, it can be one of the most rewarding parts of your life. Collaboration allows us to take others' proficiency and fluency so we can achieve greater creative heights. In a healthy collaboration, we should harness everyone's best qualities to make stronger work. Sadly, in many collaborations, it can be a nightmare when collaborators don't behave as they should. As If we didn't have enough problems in our own heads with fear, self-doubt, and getting inspired, we have to work with others on our music and deal with their baggage. Navigating how to collaborate properly takes evaluations of others' reactions to your ideas as well as their input. This navigation is especially complicated since, in a way, you're collaborating with everyone who gives you an opinion on your music which now comes unsolicited via social media everywhere you look if you have any success. You'll inevitably hear opinions from outside your group. Managers, booking agents, A&R, writers, and every negative mouth breather who can comment on a Facebook thread. As the saying goes, no man's an island, so if others are going to hear your music, you have to get good at them giving you feedback if you don't want to be a nervous wreck all the time. Getting good at hearing this feedback from everyone you encounter is one of the most important parts of who you are as a creator. Establishing a nurturing creative environment. Failing and mistakes are part of the process. Creativity is allowing yourself to make some mistakes. It's a matter of knowing which ones to keep. Scott Adams. Studio budgets are usually below our ideal scenario. Time equals money, so those paying for a project can get pretty antsy about making mistakes and failing at ideas. To make matters worse, impatient musicians who want to get the creative process over with force their will on the process to get it over with as soon as possible. No matter what obstacle your team presents you, know that there needs to be room to make mistakes without punishment. Bad ideas lead to good ideas in time. So knowing what not to do gets you closer to what you should do. Expecting every idea to be a good idea is a ridiculous notion. Pixar's Ed Catmull puts it this way, Mistakes aren't a necessary evil. They aren't evil at all. They're an inevitable consequence of doing something new. The more you fail, the more you learn. David Chang Skrillex and Diplo decided to work with Justin Bieber when he was at the lowest point in his career. This production duo was at that rare point where they were maintaining cred in hipster circles while being wildly successful. When Skrillex was asked about why he worked with The Beeb, he said, My fans get what I do and like that I'm not afraid to fail and not afraid to do things people don't like. This attitude netted not only their biggest hit yet, but also a song regarded as very original by pop music standards that's changed the sound of the genre today. This lack of fear has allowed him to go from being a popular emo singer to unknown EDM producer to having the most streamed record of 2012 and now a successful pop producer. To call this career trajectory rare is a huge understatement, but it's inarguable that this lack of fear of failing has allowed him to achieve great heights in multiple genres. Try again, fail again, fail better. Samuel Beckett. Study after study shows that innovators fail constantly, but they persist past these failures until they find what they're looking for. Allowing collaborators to pursue a bad idea is how you get to good ideas, and nothing will hack the need for that experimentation to get to good ideas. Creating an open environment. To get the best ideas for your songs, you must keep an open mind and try any idea given by someone who's passionate. Dismissing others' ideas by saying they won't work before hearing them destroys the passion of the person with the idea, as well as makes them less prone to share ideas in the future. This behavior creates a closed-off environment and makes the project suffer when they withhold future contributions. Even the worst contributors to a musical project usually have at least a 10% success rate of contributing worthwhile ideas that help the greater good. This need to try ideas instead of discussing them is further evidence when someone describes a part with words instead of playing it. The idea usually sounds terrible, but the same part often sounds amazing when played within the context of a song. Even when these ideas are bad, they usually inspire better ideas by hearing the possibility of possibility. I can't count how many times I've tried a terrible idea that then inspires an epiphany leading to an exchange that makes a song dramatically better. This openness isn't only there to keep egos happy and passionate towards the project. Trying out others' ideas is what leads to improvements. An environment where everyone is free to share is one that continually improves its output. Even if you're a solo artist with a dictator-like vision over a project, lending the time to hear others' ideas will often inspire better ideas of your own. Serve the song. Part of being in a musical project is working within the limits of what the rest of your team agrees on to find the best emotion for a song. These collaborations can be a constant minefield of ego wars and tiptoeing around pressing issues. However, no matter how much you dislike your drummer or his taste in music, once you join a project, you're both on the same team, so you should be working toward a common goal together a great song. If you pay attention for long enough, you'll hear interviews with producers or musicians where they describe the best musicians as those who serve the song. This cliche is a cool sounding way of saying that the musicians who make great songs don't think about what's fun to play or make others who play their instrument respect them. The goal everyone has to work towards is what's best to further the intent of the song. It's often said that in any song, one instrument will play a part that's pure utility of staying out of the way to let the other parts grab a listener's attention. The key to serving the song is to consider when it's time for an instrument to shine and for another to stay out of its way. It's crucial to recognize these dynamics in collaboration by knowing what role you should be playing at different points in a song, which allows songs to reach their maximum resonance. Knowing this role and that you aren't always the person who should be getting the most attention is crucial to putting the emotion of a song first. If everyone can agree to put ego aside to do this serving, you'll all be rewarded by the best song you can create. Despite what your recognition-craving ego tries to tell you, what both you and others enjoy are musicians who serve the song. Take the selfless road by considering what you can play that furthers the emotion of a song, not what's only fun to play or challenging to your chops. Trust me, every musician you want the respect from will be more impressed by what you play in a great song, not how fast you can play a 30-second note. The Most Toxic Phrase Among Musicians Don't tell me how to play my instrument, and I won't tell you how to play yours. Some fragile child pretending to be mature enough to handle a collaboration. If there's one phrase I've heard uttered by countless musicians who make music no one wants to listen to, it's this one. On the contrary, I've never heard a successful musician utter this saying in even the most ego-filled musical environments. As much as you want to show off the awesome new technique you just learned, it's probably not the time or place. There are countless reasons someone needs to comment on your part. Every musician at some point can get lost in not challenging themselves enough or playing a part that's fun for them but not quite right for the picture as a whole. You're not always the most objective judge of what your part is doing. No one is immune to objectivity, so cutting off comment from your performance, you lose the ability to improve upon it. To write a good song, new ideas need to be welcomed, not shunned. By shutting down everyone's suggestions, you'll never know if you could have come up with a better idea. We need to remember that while music is an emotional expression, none of us are beyond reproach since we can lose our objectivity. Since we're judging music emotionally, it's entirely appropriate for someone to make a comment that what you're playing isn't emotionally appropriate. Producer Ron Howard screens his movies to audiences countless times. It's presumed these screenings are used to genetically modify movies into perfectly consumable products that make lots of money. Instead, Howard says it isn't to let the audience dictate the shape of the film, but to make sure what he's trying to communicate gets across. His objectivity is lost since he knows the details along with everything left on the cutting room floor. To get around his loss of objectivity, he has engineered a way to make sure the intent of a movie is working despite any changes made. In music, we can often get lost in the ideas that our intent isn't being communicated the way we think it is, so it's necessary for collaboration. Collaborators to comment on our work. A truly great musician doesn't cherish their ideas, since they can easily come up with many ideas in a short amount of time that can work in a song. If you go on to success, there will be other times to use the idea you're being asked to abandon, and it may be even better with further development in a song you write in the future. Less is more and essays on why a part works. Let's say you're working on a song and the MC is doing a line that has too many syllables. You. Hey man, that line isn't working. MC. It works because it's so savage. You, can we try something else? MC, bruh, this line, like, makes the whole song. Anyone who wants to get their way can talk endlessly about why a part works in theory terms. There are countless phrases like, less is more, or, it is what it is, that lazy morons use to justify their opinion that can be applied to a situation. Whether or not these sayings are truly what's best for a song. Philosophizing why parts work as compared to hearing them back and giving them an open-minded emotional reaction ruins songs. Any good communicator can parse words to justify why a part works, but it can never convince anyone to emotionally enjoy a song. Less is more has nothing to do with emotion. It concerns quantity, which is not an emotion. If a part isn't feeling right to a collaborator, that has to be cause for pause to try alternatives to see if the part can be improved. Odds are the part contradicts the intent of the song, so you need to find an alternative more in line with the intent. Taking a short time to try alternative ideas allows us to vet our ideas to make sure they're brought up to their highest emotional resonance. This vetting improves your ideas. Even if you keep the original, you know the first idea was great after you hear alternative ideas that don't feel as good. Using examples to get on the same page with your collaborators. One of the most important parts of collaboration is speaking a common language. Since music is so subjective, we constantly use words without clear definitions, so it's important to get on the same page with one another. Before I start any project where I'll be producing, I don't allow the project to start unless the band gives me a list of music they enjoy so I can understand where they're coming from. I primarily do this to have a tangible example to communicate with. When a guitarist tells me they want a quote-unquote, warmer tone, this can be very hard to interpret. If you ask five musicians what warm sounds like, you'll get five different examples. But if there are examples of tones that someone likes, it's easy to get on the same page. These examples can also help tell me what type of grooves they enjoy, as well as if they like a more raw mix or a super polished one. While I can hear demos and begin to understand them, they give me little to no clue about a group's tastes or their aspirations for their sound beyond the tools they have available to demo with. Most demos are demos, since the musician doesn't have the tools to make the tones they want to hear. So I ask every band for a list of a few records which tells me about the tones and productions that resonate with them for each instrument. This may look something like this. Drums. Mars Volta, Deloused in the Comatorium, for drum sound. Justice, Cross, drum grooves while still being highly manipulated. Glass Worship and Tribute, drum intensity. Vocals, the 1975, I Like It When You Sleep, harmonies and backing vocals. The Clash, London Calling, use of different voices. Bjork, Homogenic, production. Synthesizers. Grimes Art Angels How unique the sounds are Anamaguchi Endless Fantasy The Emotional Content of the Tones Paris White Noise The Way the Synths play with the vocals Bass Death from Above nineteen seventy nine All Tone Blood Brothers Burn Piano Island Burn Diversity of Tones Team and Paula Currents Tone and Arrangement Optimizing the Creative Environment Among Collaborators One of the assumptions made about music is that if you put a bunch of the most proficient musicians in a room together, they're bound to make great music together. But anyone who's heard the majority of supergroup albums knows this isn't the case. There's a good reason for this. When the environment is toxic, even the best performers fail to make music anyone's excited about. Years ago, Google started Project Aristotle to discover what makes teams perform better. They discovered that teams operating in the right environment with mediocre players could outperform superstar players. The key to good collaboration is that if you get the right boundaries, teams perform better. Here are a few ideas they found as well as some of my own. Psychological safety. One of the keys to getting a good performance is psychological safety, which is the ability to speak your mind without fear of being punished, even if you say a bad comment about your superior or the group as a whole. Just as we need to fail to get to good ideas, honesty needs to be rewarded. There needs to be a conversation, not a dismissal, even when it's questioning someone who's higher up on the totem pole than you. The environment needs to be free of shaming where collaborators can say their innermost emotions since that's what's often being sung about. There can be no fear of ridicule or any expectations of being right all the time. Being Heard When you get a group of collaborators together, some are bound to be more vocal than others. Humans vary in how precious they are with their words. It's important that everyone in a collaboration feels heard, even if some collaborators take too long to say what they mean. To be sure everyone feels heard, try asking if anyone has anything left to discuss before closing comment on a song or a particular issue. Group norms. There will be bad moments in every collaboration. Whether it's caused by a lack of sleep or an impassioned disagreement, there's bound to be disagreement. Group norms are the standard operating function of a group of collaborators. If your day is filled with fights, your norms are tense. Whereas if you're having a fun collaboration 13 out of 14 days, your norm is a good collaboration. Norms are important since everyone understands there's occasionally a bad moment. So if you operate well most days, a tense moment can be overlooked from time to time as long as the majority of the time you operate well. Trying to keep your norm as positive as possible enhances collaboration greatly to make up for the inevitable bad moments. Don't assume malice when a lack of consideration is likely. One of the ways teams break down is the assumption of intent to hurt a member when the person didn't consider that this action would be hurtful. If someone is consistently being neglected or hurt, there should be a discussion to remedy the situation. Far too often we jump to the assumption of bad intentions when the person being accused of malice has their head and intentions focused elsewhere making them oblivious to their hurtful behavior. It should always be okay to say you were hurt by someone else. On the other side of that coin, accusing someone of hurting you intentionally escalates situations needlessly when it's possible they were just inconsiderate. Try to confront these actions without accusation of malice. Social loafing. One of the downsides of large groups is the laziest collaborators will contribute less when they assume others will pick up their slack. Setting responsibilities and asking for comments can help to alleviate a lack of contribution. An expectation of results as well as contributions regularly keeps members' creative ideas in practice. Skin in the game. Make sure collaborators see benefits that are on par with their expectations. Many songwriters do 50-90% of the work, yet give those who help make the song better an equal cut of royalties so they'll have skin in the game and maintain a lifestyle that makes them feel rewarded for their other contributions like band business or handling other facets. Without benefits that are equal across the group of collaborators, animosity builds, leading to undermining power struggles. Dealing with personality deficiencies. Ego does not help creativity. Ego is talked about as an incurable downside to working with proficient musicians. To make matters worse, most musicians don't understand what ego is, assuming it's whatever Kanye has said on his latest album instead of the toxic motivations behind some of their most crucial decisions. As someone who's worked with top session musicians and humongous rock stars, I can definitely say the personalities I've seen make the best work consistently put their egos aside for the sake of a song. Ego getting in the way of creativity can manifest itself in the following ways. Agreeing to hear others' ideas while knowing you'll stick with your original idea because it's yours. Keeping your mind closed to others' ideas from a need to have your idea used closes potential for improvement in favor of ego's gain. Defending that the part you're playing is as good as it possibly can get before you hear alternate ideas. Wanting credit for the work you did or taking the side of ideas that get you a greater share of credit. Making decisions for songs based on what makes your own individual parts look best instead of the song itself. When collaborators put their ego first, everyone knows it. While it may be an unsaid part of the process, deep down everyone is resentful towards those who put their ego before the good of the team. Understanding your ego's flaws is an ongoing process for most of us. Some struggle less than others, but to get the best creative decision, you need to gain a perspective on where your ego fails you. Silence doesn't kill the ego. Some mixers try to alleviate ego struggles by not allowing a musician to comment on any part they played themselves. This practice sadly neglects the fact that a musician may see the nuances of their part better than any other member of the team. They see a small but significant details in their work that need to be defended in order to make a song realized, as well as flaws that need tweaking. Keeping ego out of music isn't about silencing team members. It's about opening communication that's for the greater good instead of for selfish reasons. Music isn't made better by restricting the discussion. our instincts and emotions. Some people will silence commentary since they fear their insecurities will be exposed if others are allowed to comment on their work. They may even delude themselves that their ideas are as good as they can be, so no suggestion or challenge can ever approve upon what they do. No artist is beyond reproach, and anyone who tries to tell you this is how they work is hiding their insecurity. When I mix a record, I tell bands to feel free to explore their every instinct, since I'd rather look at a suggestion to make sure I can't optimize it than never have given a second look to a part that could be potentially strengthened. Egoist work is open to suggestions since it knows consideration gets to a better outcome. You cannot fear other suggestions to protect an image of yourself. You want to be of the right opinion, not just right. Ego prevents us from admitting we've changed our mind. Too many people think they need to look strong, trying desperately to avoid admitting their flaws for fear it makes them look weak. Everyone is human. No one thinks that you're immune to making mistakes, no matter how much they respect you. When you realize you're wrong about a decision, continuing to posture that you're right means you end up with a decision for your music that isn't as good as it could be. Changing your mind is a sign of strength, not weakness. It indicates maturity in someone who puts the purpose ahead of their image. Try to understand the other person's perspective. You need to consider why someone feels the way they do for reasons other than them being selfish, evil, or egotistical. Otherwise, you haven't properly considered their side. Far too often, collaborators assume selfish motives instead of genuine concern or emotional intent when defending their opinion. Taking the time to consider the benefits of an idea and why it would work is the only way you won't be blinded by ego. Getting beyond the power struggle. In any relationship, whether it's collaboration, friendship, or sexual relationship, after the initial getting to know you period or the exciting honeymoon period, there's usually a period called the power struggle. In this struggle, collaborators will try to exert who will be the leader in various fields like business, planning, creative decisions, etc. As the politeness of initial meeting wears off, this struggle gets more and more apparent, often causing a breakup, years of strife, or, in the best-case scenario, it all falls into place, allowing for a symbiotic relationship to occur. While some power dynamics easily settle into structure, others result in years of strife. For many collaborations, this becomes a passive-aggressive struggle that's never discussed or even realized by those involved. When experiencing strife, it's best to call it out and find a solution that gets this struggle over with to create a dynamic that works. Discussing the unsaid struggle to figure out a dynamic that works for both parties is the only way a collaboration can last. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Inevitably, right after I discuss having an open environment, someone chimes in that too many opinions are bad since too many cooks in the kitchen spoils the meal. While I believe there are scenarios where there are too many cooks in the kitchen, most often this is used to silence collaborators by repeating an irrefutable cliché. When someone proposes too many opinions is the problem with the collaboration, the intended consequence is that someone has to stop saying their opinion. More often than not, this alienates a collaborator, causing them to withhold worthwhile contributions in the future. To understand this, consider how a kitchen actually works. In restaurants, there are valuable feedback mechanisms throughout a restaurant's team. The wait staff tells the chef if there's a bad reaction to the food, like if the milk is turned, a recipe isn't right tonight, or a cook on the line is botching an element. The management tells the chef if they're spending too much money or being too slow getting out meals to be profitable. The sous chef and cooks tell the chef if there are inconsistencies in the ingredients so they can contact another vendor. The chef is the person making the large creative decisions about these issues for as long as everyone else has confidence in their ability to do so. Music often has a similar dynamic. The main songwriter is essentially the chef who comes up with the broad strokes of a song. Then there are the collaborators to help execute what the songwriter cannot do on their own. With that said, it doesn't always mean that every collaborator's opinion should have the same weight on every issue. What makes the kitchen dynamic work is not being democratic. It's having each person serve a purpose. Music is trying to express an emotion, and the songwriter is usually the only person with the vision of that emotion. Effective collaborations often have roles that look over certain aspects of the process, with one person having the majority of creative control. The need to follow one vision. Producer Dave Sardi, who has made many amazing records with bands like LCD Sound System, Slayer, and Death From Above 1979, says this about the need to follow a single vision. Anytime you have more than three or four people trying to get an idea across, I always think bands work best when one specific person is in charge. It's a songwriter, and if there's a band with more than one songwriter, whoever wrote that song needs to follow that vision through, and everyone needs to get on board with what that vision is. I think films work the same way. When there's a strong vision, everything works well, and when there's a lot of competing visions, you get the movies we've all watched sometimes and think, how the fuck did that get made? Many times choosing how you handle fulfilling a vision before starting a project can alleviate many of the disputes along the way. It's effective to figure out the best assets of the group, giving them greater control over any aspect of the project. Democracy's purpose is to make decisions that make the majority of a country happy, but music's purpose is to make it an emotion resonant, which is usually diluted by making the majority happy. Democracy isn't always the best option. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Winston Churchill. While there's no clear course of action for every situation, if we want to make good decisions, I don't think democracy always gets us to the most resonant song. Now before you accuse me of being America-hating liberal hipster scum, please hear me out. Too often when a discussion comes up for a vote, the democratic process is corrupted by ulterior motives like focusing on an individual instrument or one member agreeing with the other members due to power struggles within their dynamic. These democratic votes don't always lead to the best creative outcome. They can reflect the deficiencies in a team's dynamic with one another rather than a song that's resonant. Pleasing everyone is usually a way to compromise creativity that doesn't make a song as emotionally resonant as possible. Instead, i found that when a project has quote-unquote too many cooks, it's best to discuss a course of action that'll get the best outcome. The team can take a vote to inform a benevolent dictator who has the overall decision power. Usually the main songwriter gets veto power over the emotional content of a song, the drummer will be in charge of groove, and the producer is charged with veto power on sonic decisions. Whoever has the most understanding of the nuance of an aspect of the record will be charged with upholding its standard. Instead of democracy, I think it's more helpful to think of your music the way a presidential cabinet works. The president makes the overall decisions on each choice as they were elected to oversee the intent over the country. But they use advisors who are experts in each field to help inform their ideas. If the president hears from the administrator of BEATS, there's something wrong, they should probably take it seriously. However, if all the cabinet members think the beat administrator is thinking selfishly, they move on. The dictator may not be someone who has absolute control over all the aspects of a project. Having a charter that dictates how disagreements will be handled that focuses on how to get the best creative outcome can not only help make music better, but it can save hours of strife in your life, as well as your studio bill. Especially when doing a second project with team members that had problems in the past, figuring out this charter can make your next go-around far less painful. Having someone oversee different facets of the record that suits their strengths can help eliminate distraction. These facets can be silly titles like Minister of Groove, Head of Tones, and Captain Emotion. While this title may not allow an absolute veto power, I may suggest their vote win unless all other members of the project disagree. For example, if we're arguing about a guitar tone and we know the singer usually has the best instincts about the guitar tone, we may give them two votes in a five-vote structure of four people. This way a tie can always be broken by the person who has the highest standards or best instincts. Conversely, if it's known that the guitarist obsesses over details that don't make songs better, it may be better to decide a more rational person, as the files say, so the guitarist's neuroses aren't overindulged. Producer Aaron Marsh of the band Copeland says it's his job to find the innovator and let them innovate. Finding the member who can oversee a subject such as feel, emotion or audio fidelity can lead to standards being upheld that may otherwise be decided by those who have no ear for it. With that said, democracy might tell you that you need to give more consideration to your decision. If the majority is telling you that a bad decision is being made, it may be time to take pause to see if you've lost your objectivity, thinking with your ego, or are blind to what they're hearing. I don't mean to say that democracy never leads to good results, especially Especially when the vote is four to one. But I do think it has flaws in creative environments. Eliminating useless opinions. In creative environments, team members without a strong opinion can be forced to vote on a subject that's rarely made about the problem at hand. They can't even hear the problem in question or feel no emotional resonance one way or another. Eventually, pressure forces them to come down on a side, which is a strategic decision to play politics, one member versus the other. This rarely benefits the song. So don't force these members to choose a side in a Democratic vote. They'll usually vote for the member they feel closest with or some other idea that doesn't put the song's resonance first. Always judge with the heart, not the ego. The next way to make a good decision is to eliminate pontificating essays on why parts work and solely judge with the heart. If any decision is being made to satisfy someone's ego, most of the time it's a bad choice. Someone's opinion shouldn't be shut down since it benefits a part they played or their idea. Self-benefit is not the same as being egotistical. Ego is focused on not wanting to be wrong or keeping your own contributions in a song in order to play a larger role. Make sure the song's emotional resonance is always considered first and other concerns last. Mike Shinoda of Linkin Park has said that the group acts as a meritocracy where they put aside ego to allow the best ideas to win out. If someone in the group is uncomfortable, they'll experiment until that person feels the idea has been fully vetted enough to concede. Debate which decisions furthers your intent the most. The greatest hack to get to the heart of most decisions that come up for a vote in the studio is deciding which decisions further the intent of the music. Commonly, the conflicts of creative interests get judged by ridiculous ideas instead of framing it on whether the intent is enforced or detracted by a part. If a part is conflicting the intent to make a sardonic, brooding song, judging whether it accentuates or detracts from that feeling should be the framing for its judgment. The Dynamics of Collaboration You're not so perfect match. If you agree with everyone else you're collaborating with, the rest of the people are redundant. Rick Rubin. One ineffective solution to the too-many-cooks dilemma is band leaders who think they should stack their band with yes-men or clones of themselves. The problem is, this doesn't work. Brian Uzi, a sociologist at Northwestern, extensively studied the teams that made the best musicals. Since musicals require so many different creators, a lyricist, a composer, a director, etc., this study was perfect to see a wide combination of collaborators. He discovered that the musicals that worked best had a group of collaborators that worked together a bit, but not too much. When groups were mostly strangers or old pals, it seemed to lead to inevitable failure. This comparison wasn't a close race. It was very decided that a mix of familiar along with unfamiliar collaborators worked best. The conclusion was that old collaborators have a jovial way of critiquing each other, which creates an environment where new collaborators felt welcome to criticize with a fresh eye. An environment where there's questioning from a mild level of familiarity allows questioning that develops ideas into greater work. The new connections also had new ideas that had an inspiring effect on the old collaborators. Time and time again, when observing great collaborations, the members are individuals, not carbon copies of one another. They all have unique influences that contribute to the greater whole. Striving to find a perfect collaborator with the same taste as you is a futile pursuit that's detrimental to creativity. But that's the extreme case. A bad fit is a bad fit. So hiring someone who only listens to classical music for your hardcore band may not lead you directly to greatness. The questioning that comes from individuals' tastes should be seen as part of the vetting process that leads to better ideas. Dissent is helpful since every study on the subject shows that dissent can help come up with better answers. Hating that your bassist doesn't always love your ideas can be the reason you make good songs. But that's not to be mistaken with saying no makes better creations. Figuring out how to augment the good by identifying its merits is just as important as saying no. All too often, musicians look for a collaborator who's a carbon copy of their influences. But what you see in most great bands is complementary influences that brings depth to the table. In fact, study after study shows that creative outcomes are better when there are dissenting views in the room. Disagreements can't be constant or cripple the process, but dissent will usually help get to a better result by vetting ideas. While that can be taken to the extreme where ideas differ so much that you can't agree upon anything, a happy medium can be an ideal collaboration. So what should you look for in a collaborator? I made an argument in my last book that when a musician is looking for a collaborator, like a producer, they should be looking for someone who fills in their blanks. If you're proficient in guitar solos and vocal melodies, but are clueless about drum composition, you'll need a drummer that's highly proficient. A songwriter who enjoys parts that go on too long needs to be reined in by someone with more concise tastes. Good collaborations come when expertise spans the variety of disciplines needed to make good music. Obviously, if you're both not interested in making the same type of music, making it impossible to agree on a general direction, the collaboration won't last long. But when it comes to filling in blanks, this dynamic is what I see in most groups that work well together. If you're good at writing songs, having someone who gets that is insanely valuable. If you're bad at harmonies, recording yourself, or writing drum parts, finding someone with those skills can be much more important than the ridiculous details musicians put on help-wanted ads. Working with quote-unquote experts. In collaboration, there's an odd dynamic when a more experienced collaborator comes to the project. This quote-unquote expert claims their opinion is more valid since they're an expert and they should have a dictatorship over the project. In most cases, this is used to silence others, which ruins songs. No one can be an expert on the emotion you feel inside you. As a record producer, I usually have to seed some control and efficiency to find the sound of a musician's vision since it's impossible for me to feel that emotion inside them until I hear it. I've seen countless instances of producers imposing their vision on an artist when they know exactly what they want and the producer vetoes that vision for the sake of their expertise. Since a producer often makes more music than an artist, this dilutes the artist's intent to a more generic, overused sound. Conversely, the musician can often be wrong, or so inexperienced that they need a large amount of guidance or an objective perspective on how they could more clearly communicate an emotion. When a producer tells you it's easier to get a result by employing a method of tracking they've done before, they have seen more than the artist. If an A&R guy tells you it's best to send the single to the label after it's done since they'll be more likely to enjoy it, it's best to listen to them. If the engineer tells you your Stratocaster can't make the sound of a Les Paul, their expertise will supersede your knowledge of what you think may have been done on a record. Experts are often great at procedure or wisdom, but if they try to dictate direction of how the heart wants to express itself, they can burn down projects instantly. Groupthink Whenever you hear about the downfall of creators who were able to sustain great work for years on end, You'll hear the term groupthink thrown around. This phenomenon occurs when a group of collaborators becomes so insular that no one tells them what's going on outside their own world so they can no longer make good decisions. Everyone starts to think the same since they're only influenced by thoughts within the group. Thoughts from outside the group that are not shared by the larger majority are discarded. They become self-referential, thinking little can be learned from the outside since what's happening within their group is superior to others outside of it. No one is ever questioning what they do since everyone thinks the same. In psychology, they commonly discuss anxiety and paranoia stemming from a lack of feedback. Defined as criticism and the ability to bounce your ideas off of someone else. When a patient has been in solitude, their neuroses are compounded by having lost perspective from this feedback. When groupthink is present, this is exactly what happens. Ideas aren't vetted, so the lack of feedback causes a loss of objectivity to the outside world. This outside perspective makes them unable to make good judgments, ultimately leading to their downfall. Competition Competition can either be lauded or derided depending on the type of personality experiencing it. Those who have seen competition motivate athletes and entrepreneurs to great heights can point to countless examples of it being a great motivator. Whereas introverted artists who fear competition by keeping their ideas to themselves are nearly infinite. Encouraging competitive types not to be that way is a worthless effort, since without some productive time on a therapist's couch or some deep soul-searching, this need to compete is beyond curing. This can be very annoying for many of us who have dealt with them but it's the only way to get them to focus on creating. For new creators, competition is going to be detrimental. Before they have confidence in their field, it can discourage them. In fact, many personalities can shift as they become confident whereas in their early days, they feared all competition in fear of judgment. Teresa Amabile did a study that examined how reward affects creativity. In both her initial study, along with countless follow-up studies, they found that being evaluated squelched creativity, even if it had a reward in it. She called this the intrinsic theory of motivation, which means that people will be most creative when they're challenged by the work itself. But there was an exception. This theory wasn't the only part of the equation with those who are experienced creators. These people are usually motivated by rewards as as well as attention and financial gain. As creators gain success, they begin to believe in themselves and they feel they should be rewarded. Otherwise, they'll apply their skills elsewhere since they're functional enough to do many things with their skills. The key to competition and creativity is to figure out what each person needs to nurture to bring out the best in them. If someone doesn't like being compared to others, be sure to avoid it at all costs as it'll often drive them to quit. Humor makes collaboration work better. While we just discussed a whole lot of serious topics, as well as scientific research into making your collaborations effective, you should be having fun. Creating takes a lot of thought, but if you take it so seriously that you have no fun, what's the point? Making music should be enjoyable. If you get around many of the creative roadblocks, it should make it easier to avoid the bad times so you can enjoy the process. The good news is having fun also helps you to be more creative. At one point, insanely prolific author Isaac Asimov was asked to write a paper on creativity for DARPA, in which he said, For best purposes, there should be a feeling of informality, joviality, the use of first names, joking, relaxed kidding, are, I think, of the essence. Not in themselves, but because they encourage a willingness to be involved in the folly of creativeness. For this purpose, I think meeting in someone's home or over a dinner table at some restaurant is perhaps more useful than one in a conference room. Studies have found that creativity tends to diminish when a project is only done for gain. Without an enjoyable part of the process, it's hard to pay attention. This is the reason many modern startups have ping pong tables along with other playful activities throughout the office. John Cleese of the great comedy troupe Monty Python also agrees, stating, humor is an essential part of the creative process because if you're not having fun with it, the environment will get stressful and competitive. In my tenure as a record producer, I've prioritized this skill as one of the highest in my production skills. If the room is laughing, the person who stays negative sticks out like a sore thumb. Where all but the most sociopathic personalities are neutralized by everybody having fun while making progress on a project. Leaving time to have fun can be hard for some of the control freaks who are paying the bill for you to laugh at a bad and bougie remix. But if it makes the room laugh, you're earning a better collaboration. Balancing collaboration with seclusion. Brainstorming can rain on creativity's day. One of the most common creative tools for a novice is the brainstorming session, which is commonly structured nearly identical to most musicians' writing sessions. The idea being, if everyone spitballs ideas, good ideas will come out and get the group closer to the decision at hand, since, after all, a few heads are always better than one. Right? The concept of brainstorming was invented by Alex Osborne of the esteemed ad firm BBDO. He's thought to be one of the inspirations for the character Don Draper on Mad Men. He popularized the idea of brainstorming in a series of business books he wrote throughout the 1950s. While you could point to years of creativity that occurred that followed his book's lead, the first rule he outlines for brainstorming seems to have been lost on nearly every one of the hundreds of bands I've ever attended a session of. This rule was that you're not allowed to criticize the ideas of others in the group. Disobeying that rule has led to the toxic environments of latent resentment present in nearly every collaboration I know that's made more than one record. Osborne has said that if members of a group feared negative feedback, or ridicule, the sessions would fail. Anyone who's been to a band practice knows members are commonly reduced to having stupid ideas and all sorts of other remarks. When it comes to discounting creative instincts, a boundary needs to be established to make better art. But this balance is delicate, so fragile that Osborne called it a delicate flower. While many musicians have a short temper for trying numerous ideas, Osborne found the best results came from allowing collaborators to think of the absurd, while not being afraid to share the dumbest or most adventurous ideas. In fact, limiting the objective often gets better results. So if you want more imaginative results, you should ask for them. Quantity should come first, and then through evaluation, quality comes later. Once the well of contributing ideas runs dry, that's when editing should begin, just as we'll allow ourselves to perspire until we're empty, then begin to dissect. Visionless people always defend the status quo. While I know most of our favorite songs were birthed in band practice sessions or sitting around a studio computer, that doesn't mean we can't reach greater heights by learning from this concept. The hub-and-spoke method. In Cal Newport's Deep Work, he talks of a hub-and-spoke method of execution, where each person in a team will go back to their private office to develop an idea. They then vet the idea together in a collaborative environment. This method allows development to occur in private without the interruption of flow. Later, when the idea is fleshed out, it can be vetted by the group. Even if you have a positive environment for developing songs that would make the happiest hippie kindergarten teacher give you a gold star, band practice is still not the optimal place for creativity to occur. Keith Sawyer, a psychologist at Washington University, talks about decades of studies that show brainstorming results in worse creative outcomes. Instead... The best creative outcomes come when individuals work alone and later pool their ideas. Since we know being creative in front of others isn't the optimum environment, why is every startup employing an open office with no room to think alone? MIT's Building 20 is considered a mecca of creative achievements, such as Noam Chomsky's linguistics department, which influenced both Pixar and Facebook's open offices being built around the hub and spoke idea. But unlike the open offices cheered throughout startups today, a small detail is left out of Building 20's history. It contains soundproofed offices for isolated work, unlike modern open office designs. This allowed the creators to work alone in their own spoke, but also meet with others in the hub. This model lets them think in private, but then, when they'd leave their private soundproofed rooms, the building was designed to make serendipitous run-ins happen as often as possible, exposing them to other ideas outside their discipline. Put simply, the creators worked alone, but were very likely to discuss with others what they're working on to gain both insight and objectivity into their work. So if song development in groups is often toxic to creativity, how do we fix it? This model can be taken right back to many of the deficiencies of the band practice room, or the modern-day writing songs around a computer approach. Knowing what we know about creativity, it's usually best for one person to work by themselves when they feel inspired and then continually go back and forth for collaborative vetting in the hub. In the modern band sense, this means working Working alone on a song privately and then taking it to a practice room or inviting collaborators to the studio to refine after you've gotten your creative burst out. When the collaborative environment gets stuck on a problem, it can be especially helpful to take the problem home to work in private. Employing the hub-and-spoke method isn't always about going from your home demo studio to a collaborative band practice room. Chris Bayo from Vampire Weekend talks about their band evolving from jamming in a room to now sending demos back and forth with members adding their parts on top of what's there in a DAW. The benefits of this practice are echoed in interviews I've done with members of Thrice and Publicist UK who, like Vampire Weekend, live in different cities, so to effectively collaborate, they have no other choice. A hidden benefit to this method gets back to what we discussed when members of a group need to feel they're being heard, and not shut down. By developing your idea on your own, You're free to build it until you're happy with it without criticism. The option paralysis of having too many collaborators trying to get their ideas through at once can be paralyzing. Getting the initial idea as far as possible in seclusion can allow a more clear mindset to avoid many pitfalls of creative obstruction. Visionless people will always defend the status quo. While I know most of our favorite songs were birthed in a band practice session or sitting around a studio computer, this doesn't mean we can't reach greater heights by learning from this concept. But taking creative contributions out of the practice room for further development can help many musicians get to a much more creative place. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Stay tuned next week for another chapter. Like I said, this is available till July 1st for free. The Kindle book is 99 cents on Amazon till July 1st as well. And if you enjoy this, please, 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 please tell other people about it. That's why I'm doing this. Thank you so much for listening.